Well, welcome everyone to today's Torah portion. We'll be studying Parsha Re'eh, which is in Deuteronomy 11, verse 26 through chapter 16, verse 17. And I'm sitting in for Grant today to share with you as he's away getting some refreshment, uh, some much needed time. So let's jump right in. We'll begin with a prayer and then we'll begin our study. So Adonai, thank you for this uh, marvelous uh, instruction you've given us. And I pray that today you will open the ears of all the hearers, including mine, that we might hear and obey what is presented here in your book. And, um, and I pray that I might be given help to, to teach what is true and to express it in ways that are right. So may your spirit be with us all as we enter into the study of your Torah. In the name of Yeshua. Amen. And so, um, really looking forward to what we have to study today. We're going to take a look, if you want to take a note and know where we're, where we're going with this. Is, as I mentioned earlier, the passage in Deuteronomy 11, verse 26 uh, through 16, verse 17. But also, the Haftarah mentioned that, uh, referred to that at some point. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 18 through chapter 20, verse 42. And then, I will also make reference to... Uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Um, those are just uh, significant portions of, of Scripture that we're going to be working with today as we, as we enter our study. Uh, we are in interesting times. Um, it's a time when, among other things, I think personal responsibility and consequences uh, for our own actions are... are being circumvented, or at least there's an attempt to circumventing those, and instead there's a, an atmosphere of blame and victimization. Um, so today's portion, rehe, which means to see, or means see, uh, will is an appropriate um, passage to study in light of personal responsibility, consequences, and uh, versus blame and victimization. As a counselor, I have seen, and many of us who've lived long have seen this, that um, ownership of our decisions, of our personal decisions, um, is a healthier esteem builder than uh, making than letting others carry our responsibilities for us. That ownership of our decisions uh, is good for us. And that uh, lack of ownership, in other words, someone else carrying the burden for us or taking responsibility for us, leads to actually to depression and suicide quicker than believing um, because people believe that they make no difference. When you, when you are, when you exist, when you really um, matter, there are consequences of your actions. But if there is never any consequence, good or bad, related to your actions, then it leaves the impression that you don't exist or that you don't matter. And so this portion is emphasizing our personal responsibility, our decisions, and the consequences and outcomes of the decisions that we make. And so there's an attempt here that we will see to build the esteem, to build the confidence and the view that Israel has for itself. And of course, the same will apply for us as well. We'll look at the first verse of the passage, if you will look there in verse 26, and it begins with Rehe, or see. See, I'm setting before you, this is Moses, by the way, talking to, this is God speaking through Moses, talking to the Israelites as they're on the edge of the Jordan, about to enter into the land. Uh, 
and take possession of it. And he says, see, I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today. And a curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I'm commanding you today by following after other gods that you have not known. The word rehe, we're going to take a look at it just briefly. And um, my understanding of the word and my study has shown that um, rehe means see, and the first mention is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. It's really interesting there. It says that God saw the light and said it was good. And then he divided the light from the dark. And so it means for something to become visible or to be noticed or to be revealed. And so Eve saw the fruit. Again, the word is used there. Eve saw the fruit that it was good. She noticed it suddenly. And her eyes focused. Oh, there it is. Also later on, when the, the waters are receding after the flood with Noah, it says the mountaintops appeared. In other words, in the word there is Rahab. They, they became visible. They could be seen. Something that was hidden is revealed. Something is sorted out so that it's clear that a particular thing exists, just like light and dark. Light, was, light came out, and so there was a sorting out between it and dark. So you could see the difference, and it's good. It's productive. It's a good thing to sort those things out. The fruit, that one stood out against all the others, and so the mountaintops were stood out against the water. Um, later on, Hagar uses the word, and um, she uses it to give God a title. So that when she's on her own and facing death and um, her son is facing death, God sees her, he, he hears her cry, he comes to her, he reveals to her where there's water and rescues her and her son. And she names that place Lahoroi. Well, that part of that word, is, is it means the God who sees me. And it is based in that Lahoroi, is that Rehe, it's in there as well. And so he sees me. He sorted me out from everything else and saw me and acted on my behalf. Abraham even uses this word in a place that is familiar to us. When um, he's with Isaac and he goes to offer him, and there, um, before he kills his son, God places a ram in the bush and he sees the ram. And after that, God names God, it gives him a new name, and he calls him the God who provides. And Yire, and it, again, within that name is this word to see. And it's not only the God who, it is the God who saw him and took care of him. So there's this idea in this word of seeing and taking some kind of action as a result of it, or that the sight of something made some difference afterwards. So that's tied up in this word. Uh, very interesting also the word for shepherd is roe, which is uh, a man who or a person who is watching out over the sheep to take action on their behalf. So it seems to have the idea of noticing something or a notice of something that has an effect. It's not simply seeing it, but either it causes something in us or it causes us to act on behalf of something else. So the fullness of that word is important for us to understand. As we go into this passage where it says, where God calls the people to see that I am setting before you a blessing and a cursing. He's actually asking them to notice what he's saying 
and make a decision, to sort out things like the light from the dark, like the water from the hilltop, like the fruit from everything else, like your sheep from any threat or danger around. He's asking them to not only have a look at what he's saying or the things around them, but to make, take some action. Let, it, let that, what they see have some effect upon them. So, also the word consists, uh, consists of three Hebrew letters. We all have learned that Hebrew letters are pictures or pictographs, and they represent certain characters or, or um, parts of the story. And so the letters are Resh, Aleph, and He. And uh, they form a picture story of sorts. Um, it's a picture of one who has the power to see or behold that which would cause you to worship, to, that, would, that would take your breath, or that would send your hands up. Um, there's an idea that something is revealed, and it's, it's, uh, it causes you to, oh, it causes you to notice. It, it, it has an effect upon you, the thing that is revealed when you see. And so it's a very interesting word. It's a real story in and of itself. And so in this passage, Rehe, God is asking his people and us to look below the surface and catch a glimpse of what is beneath, behind, and at the center of the gift of the land and the freedom that he's bringing them to look at the commands and statutes that he's about to give them, to see within them that to see within them his love for them. So this is a call that's very interesting, is asking us to respond to God's love. Often we've seen this, I think I grew up this way, seeing the commands and the statutes as being legalistic rules and regulations that had no connection with love. It was simply obedience, do what I say. But I'm beginning to understand that it's much more than that. And it's actually much different from that. It is about love. It is about covenant. And we'll see more of that later. Um, As an example, um, he's giving them these blessings and cursings, but it's, it's, it's not do what I say. Uh, there's, there's something else going on here. It's, it's more like, trust me, I love you. For example, um, uh, let's just look at this. Uh, the words uh, for statute and for judgment or for commands. That's in the end of chapter 11. It says, be careful to do all the statutes and the judgments which I'm setting before you today. And then chapter 12, verse 1 says, these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land, which the Lord your God of your fathers is giving you to possess as long as you live on the earth. And so those two words uh, are different words and they mean different things. Statutes, as I've come to understand it, uh, the word uh, kukim, and they are um, the things that are not understood. Um, they are the things that are, I guess we would say, above our pay grade. They're the things, at least, that are not understood yet or understood by us, but by God. So they are things that the Israelites were to do out of trust, just trusting God's goodness and God's wisdom and God's ways work. Um, we don't know the why. They may not be reasonable, 
on face value. But we trust that God has a reason for them. So those are the statutes. Things like um, keeping the Sabbath. Well, why would we keep the Sabbath and not Tuesdays? I mean, what's the difference? Why, what makes a Saturday or a Sabbath any better than a Tuesday or a Wednesday? It doesn't reasonably connect to anything. The, the why behind it is not clear to us in the beginning, or was it? It wasn't clear to the Israelites. It was just something that they were supposed to do, for example. Um, judgments, on the other hand, are based on principles that can be applied across uh, various contexts in life. So, don't murder, for example, is clearly understandable. Um, it, we would understand why we would not murder someone or want to be murdered by someone. Um, so these, the, the judgments, called the mishpatim, are more clearly understood and they're more like governors or guides for life that are meant to cover all of life. So whereas a, a specific... Um, judgment or command is given, um, that command holds within it uh, more than that specific command. So, for example, Yeshua uh, helps us with this in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in his Sermon on the Mount, where he um, helps us understand the applications or the broader applications of these truths. Don't murder, he says. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, don't be angry with your brother. Don't say raka or you fool to your brother. The application of this do not murder is broader and goes into other areas or in broader reach because it's a governor, it's a principle to go by as well as a specific command. So there are statutes which we may not understand and there are judgments which we will understand. Statutes, it's more like... Um, your children, like or like with our children, they may ask us, well, Dad, why can't I go outside and play today? And you may not be able to explain to them all of the reasons why they can't go outside and play. You can't go watch them. You're busy. There are other things to be done. Maybe there's danger in the yard outside. There are things that aren't appropriate for them to be involved in out there. But maybe they're only three years old. They don't understand. There's too much. And so you say, just trust me. We can't go outside today. That's a statute. God knows what he's doing, and we have to trust that he knows that. The commands are specifics that we have some idea about, but we can take from those and apply them and learn to apply them across a broader context. And so God, uh, through Moses, appeals for the people to choose blessing or cursing, to follow his statutes and commands and be blessed or not and be cursed. It's a choice between life and death. It's not that God, by the way, will bless or curse. And this is important to understand. It's not that if you do what I say, I'll bless you. And if you don't, I'm going to zap you. That's the way I grew up thinking. Maybe some of you have too. That is not what's going on here. What's going on here is he's saying, here's a way that leads to life and good and plenty. And here's a way that will destroy your life and it will be hard on you bring you harsh things. This is a life that will that is destructive. This is a life that is productive. Choose this one. That's what's going on here. So Moses, God's voice 
uh, spokesperson is saying, God has said, do these statutes and commands, they'll be good for you. Don't do them, it'll be bad for you. So choose which you're going to take because our choices have consequences and we're responsible for choosing which path we're going to go down. Judgments, by the way, uh, or commands here, are not to be overly uh, simplified as our English word or limited as our English word might do it. It, they, they, it means what is judgments or commands. It means what is right and wrong to do. But it also includes how to implement it, uh, how to handle the consequences of implementing it or not implementing it. It teaches us not only what to do, but how to do it and how to respond when we have done it or when someone else has uh, done it or failed to do it. So it's more of a whole package of how to behave in certain contexts. And those are what the commands do for us. The statutes are given when understanding is not yet possible. The commands provide a window of understanding and insight for how to live in the world. Now, I want to change gears. With that in mind, I want to shift to the Haftarah uh, portion of uh, the story is in 1 Samuel 20. It's the story of Jonathan and David. Some of you are, I'm sure, familiar with this story where Jonathan and David are um, with Saul and Saul is enraged and he wants to kill David. David's not quite certain of it, so he's, Jonathan says, I'll investigate. And, um, and if he is really out to kill you, well, then tomorrow I'll come out, I'll shoot an arrow and... If I shoot beyond the young man who's going to go retrieve the arrow, then that means you need to go because he is out to kill you. If I shoot short of him then and I call the young man to come back to me, then that will mean for you to come back. It's safe. So this is the story in first chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And the way that I see that this portion connects with the, the Torah a portion for today is this. The arrow was a signal. It was sent out to give direction, to show where there was life. Go and be safe. Or you could say, don't come back and be safe. Or it was to say, if you come back, you will not be safe. Jonathan was the one who decided about the arrows and the little boy and the whole arrangement of things. Jonathan was the one who put his neck on the line to go in and and discern from Saul, figure out by watching Saul and see if he would be enraged or not. He was the one to carry the water, so to speak, to find out whether what would make David safe or, or, or put him in danger or at risk. And so the story there informs us because afterwards when he comes out and he, he learns that surely uh, Saul was going to kill David, he comes out, he shoots the arrow beyond the little fellow who was helping him out. He brings the arrow. He sends him back with the arrow and all the gear. And then Jonathan remains behind. David comes out of hiding. And they have a very emotional time there where they are saying goodbye to one another. But there's also a covenant time there where they commit to one another on the level of brothers, of family, of commitment, of my family and your family are one family. And that is what's going on here with Moses as well. God is saying, I want to save you, Israel. I don't want you to be at risk or in danger. 
and I know where life is. And I'm going to take the risks on your behalf so that I can tell you where life is. And then I want you to know that that I, more than anything, am after a covenant with you. I'm after a relationship with you. I love you. I want our families to be one. I want us to be a family committed to one another and watching out for one another forever. That's what was behind Jonathan's rescue and, and warnings and guidance for David. And that's what's behind the, the portion here in the Torah where God gave these commands through Moses to the people. The statutes and commands are simply warning shots. They're, they're markers of saying, here is where it's safe and here's where it's not. They are put there out of love, out of an intent for God's to, out of an intent by God to show his concern for and love for his people. And they're there for us for the same reasons. It's a very beautiful thing that's going on here. If we're able to seek beneath, if we're able to get that picture, then it does take our breath. It does cause us to raise our hands. If Israel had seen that, if they had understood that in all of these guiding principles that were given here, all of these commands, if they had caught, for those who did catch the window of insight that God was making a very special covenant with them, a very special relationship, calling them into that, they would have caught their breath. It would have taken that, and the effect would have been that they would have acted in following these and trusting him when they didn't even understand. This is the... um, this, I believe, uh, is, is, these are signs that come from the heart. Uh, sorry, the, these commands and statutes are signs that come from the heart of God that is willing to offer his covenant of love to his people, to all of us. And now jumping ahead, I believe I see something that is uh, a menorah that parallels with these, uh, this passage today. Um, I see some connections, and I'm going to start you on a few of them and then leave it with you to discuss them in the discussion after the, your gatherings today to discuss and discern are there other connections and what might they be. But it seems like there's some menorah, something going on here between Moses' um, uh, word to the people about obeying the statutes and commands in this uh, portion of Rehe and Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Here are the ones I see. First of all, we have God's, Moses, who is his leader. And then we have Yeshua, who is also known as a Moses figure. And so he's the leader of God's people. So Moses 1 and Moses 2. We have Moses with words from God. And we have Yeshua, who is the word of God, bringing God's word to us. Um, Moses' words are pronounced, uh, are to be remembered and pronounced on Mount Gerizim and at Mount Ebal. And um, Yeshua's words are pronounced on a mount as well. The mountain, Mount Gerizim, means uh, or is a mountain that has a spring at the base of it. So there's life-giving water and it's lush at the base of it. Mount Ebal, on the other hand, the Mount of Cursing, is uh, stony and uh, and barren on top. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting that as he begins, uh, Matthew begins explaining that, he says he had the people sit down on the green grass. So it's a lush place as well. There's blessing on that mountain as well. Moses begins by saying, talking about blessings and cursings. 
Yeshua starts off his sermon by talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers and the merciful. He talks about blessings. And so I believe there's a parallel there. Moses gives his on the edge of the Jordan following uh, years of wilderness wandering and the people are all gathered there to go in to the, across the Jordan. Yeshua's teaching comes following his wilderness, his own personal wilderness testing of 40 days. Moses is after the 40 years. Yeshua's after the 40 days. When the people follow him, uh, Yeshua up on the mountain, and, um, and they are meeting just on beyond the Jordan. They're on this bank of the Jordan. Moses is on the far side, and Yeshua gave his I was as mentioned he was in the area on uh, beyond the Jordan. Moses uh, encourages the careful to be careful to keep the statutes. And Yeshua says, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to keep them, to fulfill them. Moses encourages the people to bring offerings to God. The instruction is about what to bring and how to bring it. Yeshua says, don't make your offerings before men, but to God, who sees in private. Moses encourages the people to avoid serving the idols of the people. Yeshua encourages his listeners to avoid speaking to God as an idolater would to his. Moses um, encourages the people to share their treasures or their treasure with the alien, with the poor, with the widow, and the Levite. Yeshua says, don't store up treasure on earth, but in heaven. Moses uh, speaks and addresses loan forgiveness to neighbors. Yeshua says, lend to him who asks of you. And so I encourage you to track these two along to see what you might learn between the two of them and how one will inform and enlighten the understanding of the other. One begins... Moses is, begins with choice, and Yeshua's ends with choice, with a story, a parable about a house built on a rock or building a house on sand. And he encourages us, the listeners, to make a right choice. Now, I hope you'll bear with me as I'm going to read to you something um, that I think will illustrate this choice, and I hope bring home something of the sentiment of today's study. Um, I lived in East Africa for 10 years, and I used to I saw many things, interesting things. Uh, we lived among a people called the Kalenjin and uh, lived in a, a little community, a town called Eldoret. And Eldoret had a market there. All the little townships and, and centers have markets, and they had a market there. And since it was the seat of the county, uh, they often had a bigger market. Uh, than the little small outlying communities did. And so people would come from all over to bring in their food and their carvings, their uh, baskets that they wove. They would bring in um, clothes, used clothes to sell. They would bring in all kinds of goods. This is kind of a bazaar of sorts. And, um, and so I'm going to describe for you a day. And this is an actual story of a day when I went to the market uh, many years ago now and of the things that took place there on that particular day. But you need to understand the, the market, an African market. There's nothing like it. I, I, maybe there is, but I haven't seen many things like it in our country. 
And so I'm going to try to describe it for you in my story that I wrote, and I wrote this 35 years ago. Um, but not a whole lot has changed, actually. So you could almost go back there. I'm sure you could go back there today and see pretty much the same thing going on. And, uh, but it's going to help us to understand something that connects with this idea of our making choices uh, regarding life and death. Just after 4 p.m., my friend Arapiego came to my house. He needed help getting his vegetables to the market to sell. He had missed the first two trucks coming from his village this morning and had not been able to get his goods to town until late afternoon. By the time he reached my house, people were beginning to close shop for the day. At this late hour, and at risk of the food spoiling, he was desperate, having been able to find only one lady who was even remotely interested in buying his produce. He needed me to transport them the final half mile to the municipal market stands. So within 10 minutes, we were unloading his goods at the market gates. In Kiswahili, it's called Soko. It's a mall, a fair, a rodeo, and a bank all rolled into one outdoor festival. We would translate it to market. Baking under the equatorial sun activity is fevered. Cash and goods swap hands, lies are sold and bought. Every man pulls to his side, tempers flare, greed laughs loud, and everyone who has a shilling is welcome. Could the fair or the carnival or a holiday be condensed into a single word or a phrase or, or line of words if it were possible to catalog the sounds of great cities into specific notes or describe sight to the blind? Then could the life and personality of the African market be pressured into words and lines and pictures which might place you there wholly. Sight and sound, smell and touch, body and soul you'd be able to experience it. But it's difficult to put it into a single word or phrase. And so I'm going to explain a little more of it to you to describe it. It's an enigma. It's always the same, but ever different. A kaleidoscope of people, things, noises, and aromas, and seasons. Each day containing the same ingredients, each minute upsetting their arrangement. Along a crowded, dusty street, sellers, loosely arranged in guilds, come uh, call to pedestrian customers. Customer, customer, come buy potato. The potato, onion, and carrot guild sits nearest the entrance. Across the walkway are sellers of sukuma, sarat, cabbage, cauliflower, and other leafy vegetables. Farther down are the marketeers of hot peppers, Chilies, garlic, bulb onions, leeks, coriander, and assorted spices. Next to those, are the, those next to them are trading in grain and lentils, and then the chicken sellers and fishmongers. And by the exit, the Somalis huddle on low benches, peddling their trademark narcotic twigs, known as mira, along with tiny bottles of colored liquid, homemade perfumes and elixirs. And each calls, casting. Verbal lures like fishermen testing for a nibble or a bite. Customer, customer. Nandi women, heavier than most, wealthier too, girded round their enormous waists in brightly printed kitengi wraps, leisurely perch in unladylike posture atop 200-pound sacks of maize and dried beans. 
From their posts, they unblushingly nurse plump infants while making change, buying, haggling, and bartering. Kikuyu traders, cukes as they are infamously called, neatly organize and stock their stalls in mounds of rice, soybeans, peas, and sesame seed, displaying them in, in conical mountains whose peaks jut above, highly, uh, above tightly woven grass basket bases. The Luya, another tribe, are round-faced, darkest-skinned of them all. They pepper the grounds. The Luya are my favorites. They laugh, but, like so many, but not like so many others who snicker or cajole in deceptive hopes of profiting from a feigned friendship. The Luya laugh begins down deep in the soul and then gushes from the heart like fountains from the earth's sparkling inner reservoirs, abundant, pure, and transparent in uninhibited in uninhibited sincerity. As honest and straightforward as their joy are the products they peddle, never varying far from the staples, tomatoes, onions, potatoes, peppers, mango, the finger-sized sweet banana, passion fruit, oranges, lemons, cabbage, plantains, and cassava. And then there are the Luo, a tightly knit tribal community, and the largest of the Bantu groups living among the inland sea and source of the Nile, known as Lake Victoria. Never a warring tribe and gentle by nature, the Luo are nevertheless disdained. Other tribes derogatorily refer to them as children because they don't, they don't circumcise their males. And within the Soko, within the market, they are apathetically, they often apathetically lounge in a private corner where they preside over enormous baskets of sun-dried fish. Tilapia and Nile perch lay halved and shriveled like wide, flat prunes in the blistering sun. When customers pass, flies rise in billowing clouds. The collective odor of thousands of hand-sized panfish and tens of thousands of omea, Omana, small replicas of the sardine. They strike the nostrils and sour the stomach. But the luo do not notice. Perhaps for them, the fish and flies and odor are a sweet reminder of their waterfront homes, of a melancholy coastal pace in more carefree times. Customer, customer, come you by. The incessant vocal angling in its Africanized English and varied tribal accents follows buyers like a, a worrisome fly being cast again and again until one, more persistent or more persuasive than the others, pulls the customer to one side and the bargaining can begin. Beneath the single clear note of customer, an ebbing murmuring pervades the soko. Bantu, Nilo, Asian, European, and dialectic variations from each climax in volume as the day approaches its full stride and mark activity peaks. Shouting taxi touts and street boys out for a few cents for small jobs dare one another to carry enormous sacks of beans and rice and maize twice, even three times their own body weight for a few pennies. Adding to the crescendo, infants momentarily awakened or startled scream and protest. Intermittently fading radio music of an irritatingly plucky and repetitive style blasts into the cacophony from cracked speakers in delivery vehicles snaking their way through the narrow market as they honk 
unmercifully at pedestrians. And the market blazes with color as well as sound. Earthy, organic browns, greens, and tans lay a canvas over which a brilliant rainbow of wildly dyed scarves, plastic containers, mismatched clothing, and ripening fruit is splashed in liberality. Vendors and buyers add an assortment of brown, tan, white, red, and deep black under an opal blue sky. Overhead, vultures circle. Paper scraps flip like butterflies on the rising updrafts of heat and the sun beats down. Underfoot, open sewage courses along worn rivulets, rotting produce, fruit peelings, vegetable scraps, paper, plastic bags, cigarette butts, and floating fibers from the nearby mattress production. These mix and swirl and settle over the soil, over the people, and over the food. Dispersed among the overweight female hawkers, the wandering customers in the carnival atmosphere are the insane and the sick. Street children litter the market searching for scraps, begging for coins, gambling for pleasure. Except for the occasional scuffle or the mentally insane wanderer dressed in layers of plastic or paper or wearing nothing at all, little manages to draw attention like the customer. It's only the customer, the thrill of a catch that races the heart and warms the blood in the Soko and the blazing heat of the equatorial sun. This is the market. Crowded, dirty, smelly, alive. I love it. It reeks of life. People laugh there. They joke, argue, profit, lose, borrow, steal, make friends, make enemies. It houses the physical and the emotional stores of life. It's the world in microcosm. It's the field where both buyer and seller may play an unsatisfying game and where no matter the agreed terms, both walk away ruminating, I could have done better. At the market, as with all of life, anything can happen. And today it did. Arapiego and I shouldered his bulging back of kale, locked the trunk, and groaned together as we ascended six concrete steps, hauling the load into the upper market. He looked around, searching for the lady buyer. Kakwa, he sighed. She's gone. Gone where, I asked. Before he could answer, people began running toward us, a panicked look on their face, and they collected in a huddle behind us. At first, I couldn't see what they were concerned with, even though I was only 10 feet away from them. And then I saw there was someone on the ground. I saw his feet first. A deep groan affirmed it was a man. Someone in the crowd passed me and said, Nambayasana, meaning it's very bad. I supposed that maybe he had had a seizure. But then wailing began. A woman limply lifted her hands above her head. Her eyes turned skyward and grief covered her face. She began, way, 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 way. And the grieving spread and grew louder as others entered the chanting and the grief. Amekufa, someone said. He's dead. Arapiego broke in. That's the woman who's going to buy my vegetables. She was standing there near us, grief-stricken, hands over her head in the center of the crowd, standing over her dead husband. 
Arap Yego and I loaded the vegetables and drove back home. Selling and buying had lost its appeal to us, to the woman, and certainly for the soul that had just departed. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Our lives are much like the African marketplace, filled with an endless variety and mix of joys, tribulations, successes, and failures. Fortunes are made here. Our days and energies are spent bartering for profit or for loss. And one day, when we approach the late evening, close up shock, and walk away from our turn in the SOCO, we will each answer for ourselves a single question. Could we have done better? When you or I fall to the ground someday and don't get up, where will our riches be? In the bank? In things? In God? If you died this night, what would retain its appeal for you? The choice is yours. In fact, we can ask ourselves this question every day. Can we do better? And what are we choosing? Are we choosing well? There's no avoiding the consequences of our decisions. We cannot be victims in this matter. There's no one to blame but ourselves. We have control. We can choose life and live or choose otherwise. Yeshua counsels us to learn the parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branch has become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Moses counseled us in the people in those days, which is our counsel as well, to keep the commands and statutes of the Lord, that we might live and multiply, that the Lord might bless us in the land that we are entering we can be victimized, but our future is in our hands, and the outcome of it depends on the choices we make. And they both have guaranteed outcomes. Choose the path of the statutes and commands of the Lord and live. Choose otherwise and suffer. And so our passage this day is very appropriate for us in that we have the power to choose how we're going to live through the times that we live in. Whose path will we follow? The path of life? the path of God, or the path of those around us, of the world, or our own choosing, which is going to end in disaster. I hope we'll do better. I hope we'll choose better. I hope we'll begin today choosing the best. Now, after this teaching, there are some uh, exercises, some suggested conversation starters for you that I hope you'll look through and take time to think through and discuss them with one another. May God bless us as we attempt to understand his messages for us today, to believe his statutes and to obey his commands that we might live and enter that beloved covenant that he has for us all. God bless you.